heard this is, uh, uh, well, yesterday was Debbie's and my anniversary, so I thought of getting her a really nice uh, anniversary gift. I'm going to be preaching today on headship and submission. <laughs> that was not planned. Uh, um, you know, pray for me, for us. <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is an incredibly controversial topic. And it fits in our series. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 right now. And so it fits in our series. And uh, I am not here today to convince you of anything. This is something that is, is hotly debated in the church. And uh, what uh, both sides, I don't know if there's two sides or how many sides there are, but everybody's just trying to understand Scripture and understand the heart of God. And so what you're going to be hearing today is my best attempt at that. And I'm happy to be wrong. Uh, I'm not, for those of you who are familiar with the literature, there's kind of things that have been boiled down into two main camps. One is called egalitarian, which believes in, uh, a better word for it is actually mutuality, which says there is, uh, there's really no uh, distinguishing between men and women in terms of any sense of of leadership or hierarchy or any kind of things like that. And the other is complementarian, which says, which is kind of a, it's, it's not a great name, but it's the attempt there is to say that, uh, yes, there's equality, but there's also differences. And uh, they try to hold the tension of that. So I guess you can call me a complementarian. I would prefer to be called a soft complementarian, as you'll hear, uh, because I believe in... <coughs> Uh, seeing women become all that God has meant them to be. But uh, we are going to try to work this, through this together. I read lots of uh, egalitarian books. And every time I read an egalitarian book, I pray that I'll be convinced to wholly buy into that belief. Because what I'm going to preach today is harder. And I don't want to have to preach this. I'd rather just say, hey... We're all in this together. There's no differences. We'll give each other fist pumps, and then it's going to be uh, it's going to be great. But uh, but I think this is better, and I also think it's a better treatment of the text. But you get to judge for yourself whether that's true or not. Uh, in July, we had our our world conference. Every nation did in, uh, and I was invited to speak on a panel on LGBTQ, which was obviously lots of fun. And again, I don't know why I do all the contentious things, but they had me up there. And so uh, uh, afterwards, and I wish I would have said this in, you know, in front of everybody, but afterwards, uh, a number of people came up to me and they said, if you were to start a conversation with somebody who's, uh, who's wondering about what the Bible teaches about uh, gender and sexual orientation, how would you begin that conversation? And so I've had a number of those conversations, and this is how I begin and is how I'll begin today. <clears throat> Can we all agree that the point is love? That's always the point. So uh, it's not like uh, one camp is trying to be unloving and right, which is often called the church, not super loving, but wanting to be right. I find that really, really challenging. And then there's another camp that is is always thoroughly accepting, and under that, or over that camp, is always the banner of love. 
And so you have a, a right church and a loving society. Well, who are we all going to pick? I'll take love over being right. Always. Now, uh, love is the point. It's always the point. The next question is where the tension comes. Who gets to define what love is? And that's where the tension arises. There's no argument about what lo that love is the point. Uh, Matthew 22 tells us that the whole sum of the law, if you were to summarize the Bible with one word, it would be love. But who gets to define what love is and what that looks like? We have been going through the book of Ephesians, and this is exactly what it's about. Uh, Paul calls us to be a family that reflects the love of God. That's the point. If you want to summarize what's going on in Christianity, Jesus uh, saved us into a community that would reflect the love of God, that we would share it among ourselves, and we would be a light to the world. <clears throat> and then he tells us a bunch of things. He starts to define what love is. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he says these kinds of things are divisive, and these kinds of things unify. And if you do the divisive things, it's not going to go really well. And you're going to misrepresent God, and you're going to hurt one another. But if you do this other list, it's going to go really well for you. God's going to be glorified, and we're going to have the experience of love that we always wanted to have. Now, uh, before we jump in then to Ephesians, how the argument continues in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, can I just pause and say, uh, unity is a really big deal. And uh, could you please consider your relationship with your family, I would venture to say with your work and with your church community as, as holy relationships, not disposable, not convenient, and not just about you. That there's a bigger thing going on, and that bigger thing is, is experiencing and revealing the love of God. And for that love to thrive, we need to understand words like covenant, commitment, walking together, enduring through difficult times. And so uh, we come then to Ephesians chapter 5, and what Paul does, continuing this theme of a community reflecting the love of God, he addresses three, and here's the, uh, the four-letter word, hierarchical, uh, relationships. He addresses three of them. Now, uh, again, I have read a lot on this, and what lots of commentaries would say is, especially in the part that's talking about men and women, we're going to get that in a minute, but in the part that's talking about husbands and wives, actually, that that's purely situational. There was a thing going on in, in Ephesus, and there was a group of women who came out of the cult of Artemis, and they were being very uh, controlling and boisterous women. And so Ephesians 5 and 1 Timothy 2 was written to address them. That's, uh, I hope I'm doing justice. But that's, so the, the, uh, the point is not so much generic about husbands and wives in general, but about the church in Ephesus in particular. 
that's how the argument goes. And you'll see that argument in lots of different commentaries, lots of different books on this. And I just can't make the Bible do that. Because the problem is, it was also written about uh, Colossae. And then Peter writes to a whole other chunk of churches. And they're all saying the same thing. And so I am not, I do not think it, it fits with the context of the Bible to reduce Ephesians 5 to a local issue that Paul is addressing because he uses similar language and structure in other places and so do other authors. And I just, I mean, if you, if you read the books, these are intelligent people and I just don't get it. So, let's, uh, let's jump in and we're going to talk about, we'll, we'll touch on the first two a little bit, and then we'll go more in depth into wives and husbands because that's the most contentious. So it begins in Ephesians chapter 5, and it says this, uh, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now what that verse is typically done in the church is this is our escape verse. And what we have called, what we have summarized this verse's meaning is something called mutual submission. That everybody submits to everybody else. Now, here's the problem with that. Is, uh, I read a doctoral dissertation. I was one of the advisors uh, for my old school. And, uh, I mean, my introduction was a book about that thick. And the, the verse, the, the word for submission is a military word. And it always implies authority going in one direction. It's never mutual. So if you're in an army... You, don't, you have a, a sergeant and a private. You never have the sergeant submitting to the private. Now, you do have the private giving information and all kinds of other things. There's lots of things that are mutual, but submission is not one of them. So the best way that I understand this verse to mean is that everybody submits to someone. Everybody submits to someone. And then what Paul does is give three examples of that. Uh, it starts off with husbands and wives, uh, then slaves and masters, and children and parents. And he goes through three examples to explain what this idea of everyone submitting to someone looks like. We're going to start with children and slaves. And then we'll, we'll end up. So we're going in a reverse order, but it just helps to, uh, to explain things. Uh, so here's the three examples. Children, are we up there? Yeah, good. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is somehow all about God and a little bit about children, fathers, and slaves, and masters. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Skip a little bit. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Here's what I would present to you. This is a hierarchical relationship. And uh, nobody argues with that, at least that I know of, that for sure parents should lead in the home and, and children shouldn't. If you reverse that, trust me, it doesn't go well. I've, I have 11 <laughs> reasons why that doesn't, uh, it doesn't work well. Um, but here's what's going on, and I want you to listen to this, that um, this hierarchical relationship of fathers 
and, and children, and we can say parents, really, and children, because I think that a mother and father lead together in the home, that um, what this hierarchical relationship does is it helps the children work out their relationship with the Lord. You see, if we design the world in such a way where there is no hierarchy, and then uh, we, we come along to a moment where we say, uh, Jesus is Lord, and we should submit to him, we have, we have no point of reference for what that is or how to work that out. And so God, in his infinite kindness, gives us this thing called parents. And parents are the first place that all humanity works through how to relate to an authority figure as a source of love and kindness and leadership in our lives. And you'll find that children who do not grow up in very healthy homes, who have absentee parents, do not have that experience of relating to an authority, and it really hurts their relationship with God. Many of you here know that, don't you? That you come from a broken home and figuring out how to trust a Lord is a pretty tricky thing. And so we prefer to use words like friendship and, and being a companion. And, and we, we now have a whole generation of parents that aren't really signing up for the job. They prefer to be uh, a friend of their children. Now, first of all, God bless you if you can work that out. Because there needs to be some kind of authority in a home. But even if you managed to figure it out, you would be robbing from your children an opportunity to figure out a relationship that will be very, very helpful for them in the future. Even forget about God, a boss. I grew up, my father died when I was a teenager. Uh, he was sick for many years before that. I really didn't have a dad. And I remember, and I have a very loving mother, beautiful person held our family together, really. But when I started hanging around bosses, I didn't like them much because they told me what to do. And I'm thinking in my head, you know, I'm 19 years old. <laughs> you telling me what to do. Like, I, I mean, I, pardon me, but it's true. And I remember, my, I remember sitting down with one of my bosses. I was a janitor. And, uh, and he says, Greg, so what I would do, I, I was janitor, and then I'm a janitor at the dormitory where I live. And so my friends would ask to use the photocopy machine. So I go, great, you can use the photocopy. So, because uh, so, I have the keys, you know. And they says, you can't do that. You know, it, it wears out the machine and it's paper. And I go, oh, so only a few copies. I'm thinking in my head, lighten up. And then my boss sits down with me and says, Greg, I will fire you if you keep letting people use the photocopy machine. And I'm thinking in my head, well, that's an overreaction. <laughs> <laughs> but I really need this job, so I'll submit. <clears throat> I've had to work this out because I didn't get a chance to work this out with my dad. And so it was a little harder for me. Some of you, I'm really jealous of, you grew up with great 
fathers, mothers, and it just, you just seem to roll with it. Like you get that you're not threatened, that this isn't a bad thing. This is somebody who's looking out for you. I didn't have that experience. So I had to figure it out the hard way. Then it says, slaves obey your earthly masters. Well, it moves well, doesn't it? With respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would get this, obey Christ. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This is the introduction to a very key point that we're going to get to in just a couple of minutes. And that is the equality of slaves and masters. But what we see here is that it's also about God and their equal standing before him. There's something about slaves and masters and the Lord and having a master in heaven. And that as you're the slave, you're figuring out something about a, about a better master. And as you're the master, you're realizing, hold on here, I'm also accountable. I am not above the law. And so there's something about this hierarchical relationship that leads us to understand something again about God that is pivotal for our health. Pivotal for us understanding how to get along together. Okay, so that was the fun part. Uh, let's go to, uh, well, maybe it wasn't fun, but it gets worse. Uh, so let's go to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. You can put that on the screen. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. As, in the same way that you do. Well, that's awkward. For the husband is the head of the wife. Uh, lots of um, uh, pro-egalitarian things that say head, they say, notice that it doesn't say authority. I would say that's because uh, men and women both have authority, and head is describing a certain kind of authority. We'll get to that in a moment. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And then here's the kicker that goes into way more explanation. And I'm sorry, I won't read the whole thing, but one verse summarizes it really well, and it's this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Again, that analogy to Christ. Loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Husbands, love your wives. So here's the, here's the problem that if you haven't experienced this, you haven't gotten out much. That headship or authority equals dominance and privilege. Pretty much, wow, pretty much anywhere you go, the, the person who has authority is dominant and has some sense of privilege. Um, they, they, you know, they'll, they'll take their wage and then they also collect, you know, the, uh, uh, as, the, as the business does well, they then can collect uh, more money from that. Um, uh, they tell you what to do, and maybe it's the harder jobs, not the... Whatever it is, uh, you and I, our experience of authority is there over us. And they're using us for some agenda that they have. And submission means inferiority and oppression. It just... In, the, in, a, in, a, in a, our, our typical 
way of thinking, the first thing that comes into my mind, at least, when I think of submission, is I'm somehow inferior to whoever that boss man is. I'm somehow inferior, and I'm going to somehow be oppressed and kept down. I immediately assume that. And so the natural solution to an abusive hierarchy is what? Destroy the hierarchy. The hierarchy is obviously the problem, is it not? If somebody is oppressing you, get rid of the oppressor. And so what we have as an agenda in our society is to flatten relationships as much as as, as reasonably possible. Where we just, uh, you know, we, we might have a boss at work, but, but they're, they're just mostly our friend. And, and you, you, you never, you know, you never sign up. I mean, if you guys are looking for a new job, heads up, you never say, you know, is your, is your workplace hierarchical? I'm looking for a hierarchical workplace. No, you want something that's collegiate and cooperative and flat and, you go, oh, good, I want one of those. Because we all know what happens in the other one, don't we? But I think, and this is the problem, that we've picked the wrong problem. The problem isn't the hierarchy. The problem is what we do with that hierarchy. But if we decide to flatten things, you know, then maybe the solution is we shouldn't have any more bosses. How would that work? No more police. No more parents. Can I get an amen, children? And for sure, no more men. For sure. Who, what, is the, what is the ratio of men and women in violent crimes committed? Men have proven themselves over and over and over again to be ill-equipped for any form of authority. It's proof. Here's the problem with the solution. So we're, for sure we've identified a, a, a problem, and that's the misuse of a hierarchy. For sure we've done that. But this solution of flattening everything out creates another problem. And that other problem is called mistrust and rebellion. That if you have, I was a teacher, I was a high school teacher for four years. And uh, if I'm, I remember my first day of class, it was anarchy. <laughs> like it was a horrible, horrible thing. And I remember talking to my principal and saying, what am I going to do? I have no authority in this classroom. And uh, he helped me work that through. I actually did. But uh, I, was, I was a teacher, and uh, watch a class without a teacher. It's not better. <laughs> Come on now. It's not better. Watch a society without a government. Watch a business without a boss. Come on now. We know that somehow you and I have to wrestle through this idea of authority. Because there is another problem. There's not just one, the misuse of authority. The absence of authority is equally problematic, and that is our problem. If we could just choose one or the other, it'd be easy. But we have to live in the tension of these two realities. 
So how do we avoid both ditches? The ditches of the abuse of authority and the ditch of rebellion and the despisement of authority. How do we avoid both? I'll give you three points. Number one is equality. It says in verse 9 that who is both their master and yours. It said more clearly and more essentially in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talks much more of the equality of men and women than it does about any kind of idea of headship or submission. A woman is taken from the, from the rib of a man, not the head, not the feet, from the rib. It's a sign of equality. Now, follow me on this, please. Why uh, was American slavery so abhorrent? Why? Because uh, African Americans were viewed as less than equal. And as soon as you build a relationship on inequality, it will be abusive. As soon as, you, as, soon as there is even a slight, just a slight better, the whole thing's going to be messed up. The first, and I would venture to say primary problem in hierarchical structures is they are not built on equality. And as soon as you build that way, it will be abusive and oppressive and violating to human dignity. And that has been proven over and over and over again. The opposite of this is the Trinity. <clears throat> oh man, there's so much to say. I'm going to say it briefly. What we find in the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, if you haven't been to church much, uh, uh, answer yes to the next question. <clears throat> Are God the Father and God the Son equal? Thank you. Well done. In no way is Jesus Christ a lesser God than the Father. If you believe that, that's heresy. Uh, they are, as it says in the Nicene Creed, of the same substance. They are equally God. Not bigger God, lesser God. There's no, there's, there's, there's no difference in terms of power, ability, uh, all of those things perfectly equal. And yet, we find a strange thing. And again, I watch certain people try to explain this. They call it a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. But they say, but why do you have in, in, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why do you have the words Father and Son? Those are hierarchical words. I don't care how you spin it. If he wanted to say it a different way, he would have said brother or sibling, I guess, or something. But they would not have said father and son. It's not a metaphor because he says, you are not like my father. He says, my father. It's not just a metaphor. It's describing a relationship. And here's what I love about the Trinity. It's holding the tension between perfect equality and a hierarchy and is able to live in the tension of the reality that you and I live in every day. 
and they perfectly exemplify that relationship as being nothing about oppression, nothing about dominance, only about uh, self-giving and glorifying the other. It's beauty. It's beauty. And humanity is on a journey that is going there. What did we say the point of Ephesians is? Is to reflect the glory and nature of God. You and I, in this awkward thing called hierarchical relationships, are trying to figure out how to live in community in a way where there's perfect equality, but also diversity. And that diversity can be threatening to us unless we are, as Ephesians 5 says, in the Lord. Because what all these human relationships are ultimately pointing toward, because they're so incomplete, is toward a relationship with God where we get to share fully in the essence of who he is. And it's our hope and longing. And all of us know how imperfectly we're getting there. So, women, I just don't know how to say this more emphatically, are never inferior. Never. There's never an example where a woman is inferior. I would say there is never an example when a slave is inferior. There's never an example when a child is inferior. There's never an example when an ethnicity is inferior. There's never an example of that. So when we're talking about headship and submission, for sure it doesn't mean that somehow uh, women can't teach or prophesy or uh, be apostolic. Here's, a, here's an embarrassment for the church. Uh, all the way for sure up to the time of Luther, that uh, Junia uh, is a female apostle. And what they did uh, throughout church history is they put an S at her name, at the end of her name, to make it male. Because they didn't know what to do with a female apostle. So in an effort to get rid of the awkwardness of the tension that you and I live in, they just called her male all through the years until they went back and did their research and go, hold on, this is a female all along. And instead of just sweeping things under the carpet, let's admit the tension and work this through together. But what we find in the Bible is we find female prophets, female apostles, female teachers. Uh, By the way, we don't have any female pastors, but get this, there's no mention of a male pastor either. Timothy was not a pastor. He was an apostle going into Ephesus to do some work and then go out again. There's no mention. I love that. So have you got point number one? That it's, it's perfect equality. It's perfect equality. Okay. Now for number two. Headship. Headship, as I've already said, is one kind of of leadership or authority. When I, the way that I would describe this when I do a seminar on this, I would say that Debbie and I are a leadership team. She's a leader and I'm a leader. I have a particular kind of leadership called headship. It's one kind. It's not like men are leaders and women aren't. Men, women should be leaders 
in, in all kinds of ways as men should be. It's not about that. But there is. So here's what I've never heard a good egalitarian argument for. Why, if it's all mutuality, are women never referred to as the head of something? Just explain that to me. That would really, really help me a lot. But whenever you see them paired, it's always headship is, is reserved for men. I'm sorry it's true. I don't want it to be true any more than you do. I don't want the job. But for some reason, it's important. And so we need to pay attention. So what does the word headship mean? For sure, it has the connotation of authority. You can't get around that. It means head. But uh, think of the, of the head of a stream or of a river. Another word to describe that would be source. Another word that an egalitarian has used is cornerstone. I don't know why she thought that was better. But it all has this idea as something either being built upon or coming from. So when we understand the idea of source, what men are to be as the head of their homes are the source of blessing and love and encouragement to the family. That's what's going on. So the way that leadership gets redeemed, this particular kind of leadership called headship, the way that it gets redeemed, not destroyed, not deconstructed, the way that it gets redeemed is by making it, get this, about giving love. Husbands, love your wives. That's your mandate. That's your leadership. That's your headship, is to lay down your life for those that you have responsibility to care for. That's your job. It has nothing to do with Matthew 20, 25, lording it over, getting your own way, saying, I'm the man of the house, you do what I say. That's called abusive leadership that has nothing to do with what the Bible is teaching. What the Bible is teaching is that you are to be a source of blessing and love to your, uh, to your family to make them all great, not controlled, but great, better than you. Now we come to submission. The word submission, we've already said, it, it, it is a military word. It, I'm sorry, it only flows in one direction. It means to accept, to yield, to respect. Sometimes, but not always, it does mean to obey. All unfortunate words. But here's what I'd like to, uh, here's what I'd like to, to describe how all of those words fit together for me when we understand what headship is about is about giving love, what all of these words are about is receiving. Accept. Yield. Even respect. What all of these words have in common to me is somebody is trying to love you, let them. Let them. Receive the love. Don't receive the abuse. That would be horrible for everybody. There's, there's, you don't submit to abuse. Paul says, I only have authority to build you up, not tear you down. 
God has never given a man an authority to abuse another person. He has only given authority to serve and build up and make great. And women receive that. I get how hard it is, and I get our track record. But the Bible is inviting you to work that through and to receive love so that you can become holy, fruitful, great, blessed, anointed, significant, secure. Receive that. The goal is so that you would become holy. I love that word, that you would be set apart, that you would be, that you would flourish in all that God has invited you to be, just as men should do the same by being humble and servant-hearted, not authoritarian. So here's my conclusion. To reverse the cycle of dominance and oppression, we generously give and gratefully receive love. This, to me, allows the necessity of hierarchy to exist, but turns it on its head and makes it all about servanthood and care. And if we can do this, we can show a world what the love and authority of Jesus is like, who loved us and died for us and gave us new life. Don't reject his authority, because then you reject his salvation. He has authority to save. And we need to work this through in our human relationships. I totally get how inadequate I am as a pastor in this church. I totally get it. You might see some flaws in me. I can help you. <laughs> I can help you. My wife can help you even better. <clears throat> and you, if you're a member of this church, you have to figure out how to relate to me in the Lord. You have to figure that out. It'll make you worship him more. And it'll help you work through your trust and suspicion of authority so that you can receive who he is. You have to work that through. It's interesting to note that uh, when studies are done uh, in marriage about how men and women relate, uh, 90 plus percent of the time, this is John Gottman's research, uh, 90 plus percent of the time, men struggle with withdrawing from giving love and women struggle with being critical and mistrusting of, uh, of receiving what's being given 90% of the time. So does this mean then, you know, that, that love only flows one way? Well, for sure, love is mutual. But if, you can, if we can work through men being loving and women receiving, we break something open that allows everybody to give and receive. It's shown that this is what we struggle with. I would venture to say, uh, men, we deserve to be mistrusted. And I think that's why it starts with us. But women, when you have a husband who's trying to love you, let him have a go, God bless him. Let him have a go. <laughs> I know it's not great. 
I know it's not great, but we're trying. And so look at him, go, ah, God bless him. <laughs> so can I ask you, can we please change this? Can we please, those of you who are ENVs, your home, can we please try to provide an alternative to the flattening of hierarchies as a solution? It is not a solution. Pushed to its logical extreme, extreme it's just going to be anarchy. Can we please, as the church, try something better? Leadership that's about servanthood and submission that's about receiving. Can we try this together? I know it's going to be hard. I get that. But by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his grace, I pray that we would be a light on a hill and that, that people would look at us and go, well, they, they still have issues. But they're working through their trust issues because they trust in a perfectly loving almighty, gracious God. And under his covering, we can succeed together, reflecting who he really is. Let's stand to pray. <clears throat> so Father, I believe that there are many, many stories here today where men in particular have taken advantage of women. This is uh, horrific in your eyes, and I've participated in that. And Father, I ask that you would forgive us for our self-centeredness, for our laziness, for a greater interest in being personally amused than in loving another. And I pray for the men here that you would charge them this morning with a mission to make others great. Father, would you please would you please stir in our hearts? It's so easy to hear a sermon go, well, that was interesting. Oh, Father, would you stir in our hearts a change of life, direction, yes. and motivation. Yes. Convict us of the abuse of authority. And I pray for women who have way too many stories. Father, would you please draw near and would you please perform a miracle in their hearts to let their hearts be soft as they trust in your covering and in your leadership. And as we both try to reflect Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with the love of God and that the world would know that you are our